Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're speaking with Andrew Donaldson from Akitu Wines just outside of Wanaka in central Otago, New Zealand. We talk with Andrew about his journey and how he came to be making wine back in the region where he spent his childhood. We visited Andrew at the beautiful location which is the Akitu Vineyard. So right now, let's go have a chat with Andrew. Andrew. Yes. Nice to be here. Welcome. Thank you for having us here at uh, Akitu. Uh, beautiful location here, especially today on this uh, gorgeous uh, Central Otago day. Of the yes, it's not a typical November day, that's for sure, and it hasn't been a typical couple of days because we had a, a huge front that poured through um, a couple of nights ago and brought snow at a very high rate of knots across all of the mountains, which for early November is not quite what we ordered, but no, it is part of the um, part of the pleasure of trying to make wine in this part of the world. Yes, yes, and so you had to have a couple of helicopters on standby just in case. Yeah, last night we, we, we weren't worried about the night before because there was sufficient wind to keep, um, uh, to keep the frosts away, but last night we were very worried that a big bulk of cold air was going to come out from the Cardrona around the corner and sit on top of our vineyard all night, which would have been devastating given the point that the plants are at at the moment. So we did call up the helicopters and had them stationed in the in the vineyard overnight. But the wind kept up, a, a light breeze kept up all, all night and we ended up not having to frost fight at all, right. which is remarkable. Right, very good. And so where did your journey start? How did you get to be here just uh, outside of Wanaka in central Otago making wine? Well, we could do the whole interview on that one. Um, in 1959, my grandfather bought a house in Wanaka. Um, in those days, Wanaka was a tiny place. He had to drive to Omaru, which is a considerable distance away, to find a land agent that would do the actual conveyancing for him. Uh, so in 59, I was one. In fact, I had my first birthday in that house. Um, that house was bought from my grandfather by my mother, and recently my brother bought that house from my mother. So oh, wow. that house still exists. And and, um, and my brother lives there today. Um, so I grew up uh, in central Otago. I went to school and university in Otago and Dunedin, but this is really where I'm from. So having lived overseas for a, a big chunk of the last 25, 30 years, I've always wanted to get back to my roots uh, in central. And for me, central really means the upper Clutha Basin, which is where Wanaka is set, which is where Mount Barker is, which is where we are today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, how long have you been back here making wine? When did, that, when did you – so you, you spent quite a bit of time, it seems, overseas. We, we bought some land here, not far away from where we are tonight, uh, today, uh, about 15, 20 years ago, 20 years ago. And then we sold that land and bought this, the viticultural site with the mountain behind us, uh, in 2000. Uh, it was an agricultural paddock, much as the paddocks that you see outside you now um, were, and we planted the vineyard in 2002 and 2003. So we planted about a third of the vines. There's about 41,000 out there. We planted about a third in 2002 and the other two-thirds in 2003. Mm-hmm. And all in Pinot Noir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had the con- our chief viticultural consultant was here yesterday and we were trying to work out what we were going to do next. And he reminded me that I'd kept uh, about a hectare aside to plant some Riesling. And, uh, and we talked about whether we should do that. Uh, again, I hadn't remembered that I'd actually kept it. But um, 
We planted at 100% in Pinot Noir. We've got six clones on two different rootstocks uh, across the vineyard in six different blocks. Um, and, and that's been a big enough challenge and a big enough thrill. Um, and we're, we're massively pleased we did concentrate uh, on Pinot because obviously Centro Targa, when they uh, in the passage of the last 15 to 20 years has become established as probably the most exciting place in the new world to grow Pinot Noir. Mm. And as it's my favourite varietal, I was very pleased I didn't confuse matters by, by choosing a whole bunch of other varietals that perhaps wouldn't have done as well here uh, and also that I wouldn't have loved quite as much. So, so not thinking about doing the, doing the Riesling? Yeah. <laughs> well, I still or love maybe. Riesling. Um, yeah. uh, and, I, and, I, and I adore some of the Rieslings that are coming out of Central Otago now. Unfortunately, not many other people do. Um, it's very much a winemaker's um, love. Uh, and, and this is a commercial operation. It's got to be commercial to, uh, to justify the kind of capital that's deployed and the effort that we put into doing what we're doing. So I suspect that probably we won't plant Riesling, but my, my wife loves champagne, and we've made some um, uh, wonderful sparkling wine uh, here from our Pinot, and I'm... I'm uh, I think I might do some Chardonnay so that we can actually right. make a, a, a monopole of our own sparkling mm-hmm. wine from, from our own site. Mm-hmm. And I love Chardonnay, so you know, it, we might end up with some Chardonnay. Yeah, uh, right. It's either that or more of the Abel clone of, of Pinot Noir because Abel has done unbelievably well on the site and it's one of the most distinguishing features of our wine. I think our, our, we make two blends of Pinot Noir, an A1 and an A2, which is clearly and creatively... Um, named uh, the A1 is is typically about 65 to 71, 72 percent of a single clone, which is the Abel clone, which all comes from a single block actually, which is block F, which is the one that's the most easterly block on the site. So Abel has done remarkably well here, and we, if we were completely smart and not um, not being emotional about it, we we should probably plant a bit more Abel if we were going to utilise those last couple of hectares on the on the site. Right. Okay. And so. Just flicking back to um, Central Otago, Wanaka was obviously in your DNA and, and you went away but always wanted to come back. And did, How long had you been thinking of coming back and doing wine? Did that sort yeah, of gradually come about for you? Or? I've, I've always had an expression that Central Otago has always been my home even when I didn't live here. Um, it's a, a very... If you come from here, it's, it is in your DNA. It, it, it defines a lot of your life. I, I found... I went to the Pinot 17 conference in Wellington this year, which is the first time I've been to one of the big Pinot conferences. And Nick Mills from, from Ripon, two or three k's down the road there, he gave the most wonderful and impassioned uh, speech, which really um, went to the theme of that particular conference, which was to Rangawaiwai. And, uh, and he explained what it meant to him, because he's you know, a, a multi-generational Wanaka person as well. His father was one of the great pioneers of Pinot Noir in Central Otago, or winemaking indeed in Central Otago, along with Alan Brady. And, and Nick talked about the, his resonance and response actually to the land. And Turangawawai is a very common concept with a lot of indigenous tribes around the world. And it really, and it really some of them regard it as being, this is where the roots of your personal tree are most comfortable and are most bountiful and flourish. And certainly for me, the emotional response that I have to this land is something that doesn't come from visiting it a couple of times. It comes from growing up here and, and smelling it and seeing it and feeling it. And 
those emotions as you get older, and I'm now in my late 50s and, and, and want to find a, uh, the best way to lead the, the, you know, the next phase of my life, those emotions are emotions which you can't really get rid of. I mean, the, there are a lot of incredibly beautiful parts of the world, and I love going and seeing all of them. Um, but when you come from a place like this, and you look at that out our windows with the snow-covered mountains in front of us today, nowhere ever could really be as beautiful as this place. Mm. To me, I'm mm. not saying that mm. Yosemite isn't magnificent, I'm not saying that, that some of the other wonderful places that I've been to and visited in the world aren't wonderfully important to the people that are from there as well, but for me, this is where the roots of my tree are. Mm. Uh, I'm positive most comfortable and balanced and bountiful. So for me, finding a pathway to come back to central Otago permanently um, was really always part of the plan. But, you know, I spent most of my teenage years working in the local THC hotel here in Wanaka um, as a gardener and then as a barman and as a wine steward and all that kind of stuff as sort of a 17 to 25-year-old, I guess. And and it always you know struck me as being, I, you know, I want to be back here somehow. But in those days, there were really only two things ever to be involved in here. One was sheep farming, and I really don't like sheep at all. And the other one was the hospitality industry, and which I worked in for many years. Then wine turned up. And, and so about the time that my wife and I were thinking, you know, what are the big long-term plans for us, which was sort of late 90s, I guess, um, when we were thinking about these things, there were really only three options in, in this part of the world. One was sheep, no. One was hospitality industry, and over the past 30 or 40 years I've become much more of a service taker rather than a service provider so I didn't think that was going to work out too well and the third one was wine and um, over those years I had through a remarkable um, series of incidents discovered that Pinot Noir was my favourite varietal and then about that time that uh, you know mid 90s to mid 2000s Centro Target became really internationally very important in terms of the evolution of, of New World Pinot Noir styles. And I went, this is kind of a bit of a Celestine kind of event and, and I need to pay attention to that and because this might be an opportunity which really delivers for me wonderful personal uh, rewards, um, most of them not financial, uh, but wonderful personal rewards and really you know, provides a bookend for both parts of my life. Mm. You know where I grew up and 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 where I'll where I'll leave from, and mm. I have no doubt. Uh, well, I hope desperately that I'm right. That uh, that this is you know they'll take my box out of this bit of land because mm. this is uh, this is so important to me. When I was a kid, we used to roll rocks down that mountain behind us, which we now roll, uh, which we now own. You know, we used to come out here and shoot. We used to shoot possums out here as sort of 15, 16 year olds, driving around in father's old beat up Land Rover, drinking his stolen cans of spades. You know, and and and. And, and for some reason, I remember that now. And I didn't, that thought hasn't entered my head for 30 years. Right. But, but there's a sort of a resonance that comes from land that is important to you, that you grew up in, and also land that's as beautiful as this. Mm. So mm. for me, this was a bit of a no-brainer. And then when, when I did find a mission, I did find a reason to be here and not just sit here and look at it and play in it and go fishing and water skiing and snow skiing and hiking, but a real reason to be here and be involved in an enterprise, it was pretty obvious that Pinanmar was what I had to do. Right, okay. And in this particular location for the for the vineyard, did you do a bit of looking around? From, yes. Because you, you said you had a bit of land somewhere else? Yeah, this is, 
yes, the more I read a lot, uh, uh, particularly about Pinot, and and the more I read, the more I started to understand or thought I understood that uh, the closer you are to death, the more alive you feel when it comes to making Pinot Noir. That the more marginal the site, the more intriguing and interesting and and engaging the actual output um, is, and. And this is pretty marginal. We're at 380 metres above sea level here, and as you can see, we're pretty close to the snow. Um, so there is a great deal of, of, of uh, variation in terms of, in terms of uh, weather packages each year. And so site selection, even before you get to the geography or the geology, and in our case geology is very important, but even before you get to that, you have to have the right site. And that's probably one of the reasons that the Upper Clutha Basin, or the Wanaka subregion, as it's now been called, really only has sort of two, has three or four commercial vineyards in it. This is not like the Felton Road experience, where you have probably I don't know eight or ten different producers, sort of very much in the same area, or the Cromwell Road, which has the same, or indeed Bendigo, or indeed Gibston, which have all got you know in many cases properties that are abutting each other, uh, and 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 growing wines. The, you know the the you know, Ripon, obviously the oldest here is three kilometres or four kilometres in that direction. Maud, which is out in the Mungawera, is three or four kilometres that direction. And then there's us here. There's not a lot in between that would have the, or could deliver the kind of um, site-specific security that you need to grow wine in such a, mar or to need to grow Pinot Noir grapes in such a marginal uh, place. Mm. Mm. So the benefits of that marginality, I think, has started to be expressed in all of our wines from, from the sub-region, indeed all of the wines from all of the Central Otago region, um, but you had to get your site right. So finding a site that was perfectly aligned uh, to the north was important. Finding a site that had slope was critically important for cold air drainage and for heat accumulation. Um, and finding a site that had water was also important. It was a little bit later down the track that we had actually started to discover what the geology was really all about. And, and if I could take you to the top of Mount Barker, I, you could see how glaciers have formed this land. And there are big chunks of rock that obviously were too tough for the glaciers to move. We're sitting on one of them, Mount Barker. I think the French would call it a Rosemont. And, which is basically a chunk of hard rock left behind after the glaciers have, have moved on. So the rock that Mount Barker is, in the same way that rock that Mount Roy is, uh, that Mount Iron is, or, or indeed Stevenson's Peninsula, this is very old, very hard rock. And this is uh, the rock we have here is a 250 million year old fractured schist. Now, schist is very commonly associated with winemaking in Central Otago, um, but there aren't that many sites that actually have schist, uh, you know, as the as the defining geology underneath where their vineyards are. It's extraordinary, but the vast majority of vineyards in New Zealand, and certainly in Central Otago, are planted on flat land. In, in New, uh, and in New Zealand, in this part of the world, flat land means alluvial land because this is what's left after the rivers have pushed off, uh, after the glaciers have pushed off, which is where the rivers have been. So all of that alluvial land tends to be gravel-based, wonderful for growing grapes and free-draining, no issues like that, but they're pretty homogenous kind of profiles in terms of, in terms of the geology that's underneath the vineyard. We have a line that goes through our vineyard. On the top side of that line is, is produces fruit, which has a much more distinctive, um, I would call it, uh, schist style, although I know that the schist doesn't directly affect what's actually, what's actually expressed in the fruit. 
And on the other side of the line, it's much more of the moraine that was left after the glaciers pushed off that is, that is now in a ramp up against the base of the hard rock. And there is a quite different profile, even in exactly the same clone, mm -hmm. between one vine on one side of the line and one vine on the other side of the line. So site selection here, even just about weather protection and heat accumulation and frost drainage, was critically important, but then we discovered that it also had a geology that was not certainly not unique, but a geology that was very, very interesting in terms of, in terms of the kind of uniqueness of fruit that we could produce from the vineyard. Now that the vines are, um, you know, what are they, 15, 16 years old now, we're starting to get into that realm of vine age, which where the, the vines are comfortable and stable and resonating and producing a very stable profile from each different weather package that we get. And, and, uh, and that's very gratifying for us because we're, we're now being, you know, we're now finding some proof for the decisions that we took um, when we decided that after 10 years of the vines growing here, we would actually release a wine label because that was always going to be a decision that we were going to make after a considerable period of time. We, okay, so you, you, you bought in 2001, was it? Yeah, we planted, the, we planted the vines in 2002 and 2003. Yep. And we released our first vintage 13 years later in 2014, the start of 2014, with our 2012 harvest. Mm. So we waited for 10 harvests before, before we put a name on the side mm -hmm. of the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, Akitu, where does that name... Oh, the name? Yes. <laughs> well, that took a really long time. It might have been one of the reasons we delayed so much. No, that's not true. But uh, it did take a long time to come up with. Um, in the end... A very, uh, a very close friend of mine who's a wonderful creative director, a guy by the name of Simon Coley and I, decided one night sitting on that deck just out there that we really had to nail this and we had to find this name. And, and, and we, we talked about the character of, of where we were and, and this 380 metres above sea level um, makes us pretty high. The, the back road at Gibston is probably a little higher, um, but not a lot. But certainly 380 metres above, above sea level in, in this part of the world is starting to get right on the edge in terms of what, where you can grow grapes. And so we thought, okay, height, elevation, mountains, alpine character, we're on Mount Barker. So we thought, okay, well, let's start looking at words that, are, that resonate with that. And we found an old Maori word, which is akitu, A-K-I-T-U, uh, which, which means the apex or the highest point or the summit. And we thought, oh, okay, that resonates. And then we discovered, and, and I've, always, I've always had a view that, that really complicated Maori words are very difficult for the rest of the world to, to deal with. And as I've been living internationally for a long time, um, labels like tikaranga, is, this is not an easy thing for someone that's walking into a, a wine store in London to say, I'd like a bottle of that tikaranga on the wall. Um, I noticed they've now changed the name to TK, which I think is quite interesting in itself. So I wanted to find a word that, a word that resonated with me and, 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 and the country that New Zealand is, the bicultural country that New Zealand is, but wasn't overtly Maori. And, uh, and I, I used to work a lot in Japan, and there was a girl that used to work for me in Japan, and her name was Akitu. Oh. <laughs> so it's also a Japanese girl's name. Right. And then uh, a little bit later on, we discovered that it's also the name of a... Babylonian or Mesopotamian harvest festival, a very ancient harvest festival mm. in Mesopotamia. And, and this is just part of that 
annoyingly Celestinian kind of prophecy that runs through this whole project. We keep finding these little things. Oh my God, that's a bit scary, and 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 uh, and and that continues to this day. Mm. Um, so, Akitu means the summit or the highest point. Um, it is a Maori word, but it's internationally easy to pronounce. It also starts with the letter A, which Marketing One Hundred and One says you want to be an A rather than a T. Um, so, uh, so we we stuck with the name, and it's also five letters, so it has a certain symmetry about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Very good. And so, so relatively recently, then um, producing your your first two thousand. Yes, so we've yep. just released our two thousand sixteen, which is mm-hmm. which is our fifth vintage, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Um, we we made one blend in 2012, um, uh, the label was the same, and uh, we gave most of it away to our friends and family and said, see what you think of this, and and, uh, and it, a lot of people really liked it. And then 13, we released the second blend, the A2, which is the white label, uh, which we've been making for f- 16 is our fourth year. Mm-hmm. So yes, we've, this is our, we've just released our fifth vintage. Right. Okay, and you're quite involved in in the whole process. The yeah, more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, very involved. We're a pretty small team. Yeah. Um, Steve Blackmore, who's our viticulturalist, who's who had some experience before going doing another degree at uh, at Lincoln. When he came out of Lincoln, he wanted to find a young Pinot vineyard that that he could shape uh, in his own name, and he had just what we wanted, which is uh, a lot of independence and and a high degree of skill and knowledge and intrigue. And and he's been with us for. 14 years now, 13 years now, and is one of the most dedicated people that I've ever had the privilege of working with. And when he started, we didn't have a shed or a house or a bathroom or anything, and and he literally used to work out of a shipping container, which had a pile of materials in it, and we used to park a, a, uh, the little quad bike in there, and he used to go out there and, and, and do it all himself. And, and so he's been with us right from the start and has done a phenomenal job. Um, so that's one person. Uh, PJ Charteris joined us when we started making wine. Very gifted New Zealand winemaker who lives in Australia, and 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 he brought with him a skill set that I wanted to find a winemaker that really was thinking about the future rather than the past, and uh, and and someone that had some real skill. And and he just has this touch which just it staggers me every time I see him work. And um, and he loves Central and. Um, and and he's been he's made every bottle of wine that we've ever produced from here, and uh, and we love working with PJ. But you know we see him a few times a year, and obviously a lot around harvest and a lot around blending. Um, and then my brother works about half time for me, and he does all of our logistics and bookkeeping and keeping the whole show on the road. And I've been nominated as the marketing manager, so I have to get out there and try and sell the stuff. Right. So it's a very small team. Mm, mm. And um, you mentioned before about. Um the, the being a different uh, flavour profile from different parts of the vineyard. Yeah. So w- when you when you pick that, do you keep it separate initially, just so you can? Yeah, that's see a great question. We we started our first year. Um, we we co we co fermented, so we we mixed clones before we uh, fermented. And and whilst we love our 2012, our, our first vintage, we're supposed to love your first child, aren't you? Um, you're supposed to love all your children, I guess. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> We did feel, and PJ felt, that there was a certain uh, precision that that we could be seeking if we were a little bit more careful in terms of the way that we fermented. So from 13 through until 17, with all but a couple of small exceptions where we do do a mixed ferment of a small portion, we have fermented by clone, by block. 
So what this means is that by the time we get to a classification um, tasting and, and then blending the next day, we always blend in late January over a two-and-a-half-day period where we, everybody sits down together. Um, so the first day is, a, is basically a barrel classification, and we go through and taste every sort of two- or four-ton fermenter that's been, that's been taken off the barrels, which gives us seven or 13 different barrels. So we taste every single barrel, and they're all supposed to be exactly the same. They're all the same clone from the same block, and they've been fermented in the same fermenter. Um, and they've been put in barrels that are pretty much the same, and yet they all taste a little bit different. Mm. And um, that's part of the magic, I guess. So it does give us a huge opportunity when it comes to constructing the two final blends, A1 and A2, of being very precise in terms of the profiles and the distinctions that we're trying to make um, in the wine. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've tended to ferment by, by clone and, and by block, uh, and the only time that we've really moved away from that has been actually in the wines that we tasted yesterday, which was our 2017 harvest, which was 2017 was an incredibly difficult year for us. We lost about... Our production was down sort of in excess of 40%, um, uh, mostly from a very poor fruit set. We knew it was going to be bad. Um, so our volumes were down dramatically. So we couldn't fill fermenters with, you know, with our single clone. So we, we mixed them again um, in, some of the, in some cases. And we, were, we just tasted, we did a barrel tasting yesterday, and we were kind of like a little bit stunned because the wines are actually, well, touch wood, they look seriously sexy. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and we're kind of we're now going to rethink, I guess, um, what the what the that where that mix of increasing vine age and greater pre precision and more knowledge about what we're doing and how we're evolving and and what the styles are of the two different wines that we make and 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 you never know we might go back to we might go back to mixing clones before we ferment again. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, that's exciting. And and so, how would you describe um, a key to Pinot? The two blends. Yeah, the two blends, and in relation to. You know, Central Otago, which obviously has uh, a lot of Pinot, but from the different sub-regions. And then maybe also internationally, how do you think Akitu sits or Central Otago Pinot sits in the, in the world of Pinot? Oh, there's a lot of parts of that question which mm. I'm just not qualified to answer. I mean, I'm no wine professional. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people in Central Otago that could answer that question way more accurately than I can. But if I could characterise it, or the way that I look at it is like this. It's... Uh, for me, Pinot is constructing Pinot seems to be a little bit like a three-legged stool. That you have you have fruit, um, you have tannin or tannic structure, and you have acid. And the an acid seems to be the most important structural characteristic. Acid seems to be the rails that everything else rides on. Um, I think that there was a period as Central Otago Pinot Noir was evolving where flavour and fruit were so unique and so voluptuous and so staggeringly impressive that, that you couldn't help but make these incredibly powerful, intense, concentrated fruit expressions. And that was pretty exciting, and I think that the world got pretty excited about Central Otago Pinot Noir being able to produce these things that had fruit profiles, which you would be impossible to find in... Burgundy, for example. Um, I think we might have got a little bit carried away with that. I think that sort of over time we've decided, and certainly we, in, in terms of Akita, have decided that 
because of the marginality of the site and because of where we are, we're much more suited to producing wines, which certainly you can't get away from the magnificence and the purity of the fruit that we produce in this part of the world. But for us, the more elegant, less noisy, more subtle, more complex, more uh, greater finesse um, is really more about the tannic structure and, and, and then the acid structure. I think one of the fascinating things which is evolving in terms of the subregions of Central Otago is that this subregion, um, the Wanaka area, seems to be a place which gets the acid construction more right than wrong. So the, the hang time that we get towards harvest, and we'd be one of the latest areas in New Zealand to pick. Um, so when is, when is that? Uh, we picked last week of April, first week of May. Mm. We've picked in the snow before. We've picked when the canopy has just looked like it's, well it has been, it's just like over, it's finished. But because we have such a massive diurnal temperature shift in that latter part of the ripening period, we actually can leave our fruit on the vines for a lot of hang time. And that hang time is great because our sugar ripeness isn't increasing. So we know we've got to optimal sugar ripeness in terms of our in terms of our alcohol, the alcohol content of our final wine. We've got all of the fruit flavours which are which are there, but it allows that second ripeness, that physiological, that phenolic ripeness of all the different intriguing characteristics which make great Pinot Noir to come up and meet and to fight. And we pick when those two ripenesses intersect. And when those two ripenesses intersect, we we can go. We couldn't do that if we were in a much hotter region because the we would have to pick mm. because we would be getting too ripe. And you know those Pinot Noirs that sometimes that have got too ripe? They, they kind of taste like sort of jam in your mouth, a bit sort of too confectionery. Um, and some of them, people, some people like that kind of wine. That's not the kind of wine that we make. And the, I think one of the, wines, one of the characteristics which, which we're really excited about is that freshness that our wine leaves in your mouth, that wonderfully elegant mouthfeel that a, a wine where the acid really is perfect. And I think that's a characteristic which you can certainly find in, in the other good wines of the, of the upper Clutha region or the, the Wanaka sub-region mm. and other parts of Central as well. Um, but it's something that more naturally sits with us. And I think one of the things that we're trying to be, as so many others are being, is as, um, you know, as, as non-invasive as possible in terms of the treatment of of the fruit to actually take the fruit through to the final product. So for me, the, the tannic structure and the fruit carried on these acid rails is, 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 the, is the key descriptor of, of what we're trying to do. And we want, we want, that, um, we want that acid to be quite obvious. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing that we've been blessed with is that we're not quite sure why, but Ever since we started producing wine here, the tannic structure has always produced these very silky uh, talcum powder-like tannins. We've never really had an issue with. You know, sometimes those those young tannins can be really sort of sand-like or, or, or quite sharp in the mouth. We've just never had that. So, so most people that know what they're talking about when they taste our wine, they remark immediately about the acid, um, and they remark often about the silkiness of the tannins. What we're trying to do with the two blends is I sort of characterise the blends, which I shouldn't do, but I, but I have tended to characterise the, the two blends, is the A1, the black label, is, is a bit like that sort of late 30s, incredibly well-qualified 
you know, Queen's Council lawyer that's dressed in a magnificent Chanel suit, you know, you really do know that this is something quite intense and quite serious and, 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 and something that's very valuable. And, and the way that we ended up making the A2, the white label, is that this is a bit like her personal assistant. She doesn't wear Chanel, she wears sort of more, more Dolce & Gabbana and likes going out on a Thursday night, you know, and so it's a, the A2 is made, one of the critics calls it, oh, so that's your happy white, Andrew. And I go, what do you call our, our, other, our other bland, our, manic, our wine for manic depressives? No, but I, th I think that the A2 has got a joyfulness and an approachability and a generosity, right. mm. which really does speak a lot more, more of playful. the Central Otago mm. style. And, and, it's a, and it is a happy wine. And, mm. and restaurateurs that stock our wine, they say they cannot believe how fast bottles of our A2 disappear off the table because it really is a wine that, that, that we made not for people to talk about and think about and, and discuss at great length, but a wine that they, you pour in a glass and someone goes, oh, that was nice. Can I have right. another glass of that, yeah. please? Yeah. And that's very gratifying for mm. us because most, let's face it, most of the people that drink wine in the world, they're not really interested in the tannic structure. And, you know, I mean, no. I mean Jamie Good wrote a wonderful book called I Taste Red, which, I, you know, I think is, 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 and it's about the science of tasting wine. Mm. And, and it's a wonderful book, but it's also... You know, there's an awful lot of people out there, and you put a glass of red wine in front of you and say, you know, what's this? And they go, it's red wine. Mm. And we shouldn't forget that as, as, as wine growers and winemakers. The A1 is a very different kettle of fish. The A1 for us is, you know, that precision I was talking about, that, 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 that technical cleverness that, that over time, as the wine ages and settles, you kind of get the primariness of the fruit subduing a bit and then all of those secondaries and tertiaries that you get with with really good Pinot Noir or those savouries and herbs and these these weird kind of um, secondaries and tertiaries come, that's really what we're trying to achieve there. This is a wine that we really do want to sit down and think about and talk about and mm. and, and, and get serious about. And and which do I like more? It's a great question. I, you didn't ask it, but it is a great question. Yeah. It's, uh, um, <laughs> well, it probably it's depends on the time and it's, the. It, well, it, 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 it actually is interesting. I do find myself opening A2 increasingly mm. uh, for people. I think one of the reasons for that is a very good friend of mine, in fact, the man that first got me interested in, in, in Burgundy and Pinot Noir, he, he wrote me a letter and, and he said, and he's been supporting our wine for a long time, and he's a fantastic fella and, uh, and a great wine palate. And he wrote a letter and he said, Andrew, stop drinking your A1. You've got to put this away, and we don't want to drink it again for another five or eight years. We've got to see what this does. And his view is that there's a window. Now, he's, he's done a lot of work on Vine Age and Centro Otago Pinot, and his view is you've got to buy as much Centro Otago Pinot Noir now of the best quality because by the time that these really show their full expressions, which he reckons will be about 2020, 2021, that it's the price is going to go through the roof. <laughs> he's that, and he's an Englishman, and he's right. that convinced that right. Central Otago Pinot has that kind of opportunity to compete with some bottle age on top of the vine age. Mm. Mm. You know, because vine age is is uh, I was once had the um, luxury of, of a little tour with Nigel Greening through through the um, barrel hall at, uh, at at Felton, and he took a sample out of a barrel and put it in a glass, and I tasted it and. I didn't know whether to cry with tears or, or with desperation because this thing was like an elixir of the angels. It was just the most incredible thing that I poured in my mouth, as he told me in the end. It was block three. And uh, I just went, I better give up now. Because this stuff was just off the charts. 
And he said, relax, Andrew. He said, this is Vine Age. This is Vine Age. And, and, and those vines are probably 20 years older than mine. Mm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty patient person, particularly with this project. And it is a journey, as you started off saying. It's, it's a pathway. It's not, we're never finished. And, and, and I'm fascinated to find out what that vine age, bottle age combination is actually going to result in, in terms of the wines of Central Otago. And, and, and yes, and, and indeed our wines as well. Mm, mm. And just uh, for either of them, is there a, a particularly favourite pairing that, you've, that you enjoy um, with either of them, maybe you know, with summer coming up, is there something that you go, oh, this is just, yeah, I, this is just always really good to to have with one of these. I, I love venison, and um, I venison and and either blend seems to work pretty well with me. I do tend to have the A one as a bottle of A one. Okay, yeah, yep. you know, I I don't know why. Perhaps because I'm concentrating so hard to see yep. if I can find something. Yeah different or find something that we should talk about mm. amongst ourselves viticulturally or from a winemaking perspective but I, the thing that engage or engages me about pinot versus other varietals is i've only ever found that pinot is the wine that you you, you know you start drinking and you pour in a glass and you you have that first glass and 10 or 15 minutes later you pour a second glass and and you kind of go, Jesus, did someone change the bottle on us? How, how did that profile change in 10 or 15 minutes? And then you go, wow, that's a bit strange. And then it's fascinating as well. And then another 15, 20 minutes later, you pour a third glass and you go, it's changed again. And there's that, you know, that wispiness, that etherealness, that inability to pin it down is what it is. That's what I find most fascinating about Pinot. You know, there are lots of other red wine varietals which are fantastic to drink, but I've never found that that wispiness, that 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 sort of ghost-like kind of sensation that wanders through the course of drinking a bottle of properly aged and, and properly presented Pinot Noir. Mm. And and so I do tend to drink the A1 a, a little bit more by itself, by itself. but yeah. it's pretty good with barbecued meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we passed it then. The deer farm just down the road there, so uh, yes, and, and nice and handy. And it's wonderful to see venison coming back because it's such mm. a magnificent meat, particularly from this part of the world. Let's finish on the final question then, uh, Andrew, which is if you could have any glass of wine with anyone, either living or dead or even not yet existing, uh, what wine would it be, and and who would you like to who would you like to share that with? That's um, so. I was trying to think of a really clever answer to that. You know, I was going to say, you know, someone. Um, historically really important but the person I'm, that I am going to choose for that is someone that is um, personally very important which is, um, which is my father who passed away about 10 years ago and he saw the start of this project but he never saw the wine and he loved wine and I'd have a glass of wine with him our wine yeah lovely very good yeah. very good Hey, well, thank you, Andrew. That's Pleasure. Been, um, that's been really great. Thank you for having us here. Welcome. I hope the sun shines a bit more brightly next time you come. But oh, you're, well, it's you're not, welcome it's anytime. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. Thanks again. Good luck. Cheers. We've been speaking with Andrew Donaldson from Akitu Wines just outside of Wanaka in central Otago of New Zealand. 
and we were on site on the vineyard at that beautiful location. If you're wanting to find out more about Akitu, you can look them up online. That's akitu.co.nz. And also be sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts where we talk with other wine makers, sommeliers, vineyard owners, etc. It'd be great to have your company. Thanks for listening in. Hey, Kona mai. Bye for now.